You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Good evening. Have you ever tried to talk a person who's had too much to drink out of driving home? Uh, you know, sometimes they may admit, oh yeah, I'm pretty hammered, you know, you better give me a ride. Sometimes it's more of a struggle though. Uh, you know, you say, hey, you've had too much to drink. No man, I'm fine, I'm cool, don't worry about it. Or you can say, hey, you might hurt somebody. No man, I'll be careful, don't worry about it. Sometimes it's hard to get to convince a person not to drive drive home drunk. And everybody knows before they get in a car when they're under the influence that that's not a good idea. I mean, everyone knows that's sober, um, but yet people do it anyway. And that's resulted, and this is in 2013, these statistics, uh, 290,000 people were injured in drunk driving related car crashes, and over 10,000 died. And that's 28 people a day dying from something everybody knows is wrong before they do it. Yeah, I mean, there's very few people that would say, yeah, it's perfectly fine to go and drive drunk. Now, I'm sure everyone, probably everyone, who has any sort of conscience, if that happened, if they got in some sort of accident, whether they're under the influence and even lives were lost, and if they survived through it, I'm sure what they would say is, I should have never gotten in the car. I knew what was going to happen. I should have listened, and I shouldn't have done that. And this happens a lot of times when there's, we know there's consequences to something and we choose to ignore those consequences and think they're not going to happen to us or uh, we just don't believe it. And so in, in the book of Romans, that's where Paul starts. You know, last Sunday we read kind of the overview, the introduction. And he says, the just shall live by faith. And we talk about as Christians being saved. And in order to be saved, you have to know what you're being saved from. Um, so uh, we, we don't pay, take precautions for something unless we think it's a real problem. And that's why when Paul starts this letter, he says the just shall live by faith, which is kind of like his thesis statement, if you will. That's what he's going to prove in this letter. And the, the thing he has to do first is establish, well, what's the problem? And what are the consequences? Why are we uh, justified by faith and not by works? So he starts with a couple chapters that are pretty intense because he's proving that there's a problem. He's proving or he's saying what happens if you choose to ignore the consequences. Just like, you know, if you choose to ignore consequences for driving home drunk. And so without understanding what's going, what could happen to you, a lot of people say, no, I don't need to be saved because they don't know what they need to be saved from. And uh, we don't feel like oftentimes that we need a Savior because we don't understand the consequences of our sinfulness. It's almost like in these beginning chapters that Paul is being God's prosecuting attorney. And he's trying to prove to everybody that they're guilty. That everybody deserves condemnation. Everybody deserves to be separated from God eternally. And that's why understanding your sin is the first step to salvation. If you don't think there's anything you need to be saved from, then you're not going to be saved. So even though sometimes we don't like hearing about sin, we don't like hearing about wrath, we need to understand this to understand why we need a Savior. And so today we get to talk about those things, sin and wrath. So if you guys go ahead, bar the doors, and you lock them, let's lock everyone in. No one can leave. And if people don't like hearing about sin and wrath. And uh, that's actually the next few chapters in Romans. So, you know, buckle your seatbelts. And today especially is a very heavy, uh, very controversial, very convicting section of Scripture. Uh, so I hope you enjoy But what we'll see today is because of our sinful nature, we need to turn to Jesus for salvation and continually turn to Him in repentance even after we've accepted His payment for our sins. And so what we're going to see today is Paul's going to write about 
what's called God's passive wrath. And this is a term theologians have come up with to distinguish God as different types of wrath. One is God's act of wrath. That's when we, what we usually think of on the day of judgment or during the tribulation when all these trials and uh, plagues and so forth are happening on the earth. That's God's act of wrath. He's uh, pouring out His wrath on people. And God's wrath is His eternal hatred of sin. God hates sin because He's perfect. But today we're going to see God's passive wrath. And that's what is going on right now. God isn't actively pouring out His wrath on humanity, but passively, uh, His wrath is still upon people who haven't accepted Jesus' payment. It's His passive wrath. And what that means is He's sort of letting people do their thing in hopes that that's going to bring them to repentance. That's what Paul writes over here. That's what we're going to study tonight. So first let's read this, uh, the second half of chapter 1 and see what you're in for and uh, take it all in, then we'll break it down. He's talking about God's passive wrath. Starting in chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And again, the just shall live by faith. And Paul is proving none of us have the works to be justified. To be declared justified means to be declared righteous by God. None of us have the resume, so to speak, to say to God, you should declare me righteous. It's by faith. And again, to prove that, he has to say what you need to be saved from. And the first thing right here this section is again about God's passive wrath on humanity. And it's sort of this process we'll look at. First what happens is people reject God, and then people create their own gods, and then God rejects people. That's his passive wrath when it says he gives them over to their sins. Uh, so first we're going to see how people reject God. And that's in verses 18 through 21. People reject God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse because although they knew God they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. And he's talking about people's rejection of God. And how do people do that? It's, it's a conscious thing. It says they suppress the truth. It is suppress the truth. That's what it says uh, in verse 18. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's a forcibly putting an end to. The dictionary defines suppress. It's not just they don't notice things. It's not that it's hard to notice God. It's they suppress it. Hey, those who do not know God, who reject God, suppress the truth of God 
in their unrighteousness. Because they don't want anybody to say, you know, what you're doing is wrong, what you're doing is sinful. And it's not just ignorance, it's suppression. It's putting an end to that. It says that what may be known of God is manifest to them. So God has revealed himself. I mean, it's clear to see by, you know, looking just at the world is what he re- his argument here. Uh, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. And just by the world, the people, the way things all work, that clearly points to a creator, clearly points to a God. And that's the first step. It doesn't necessarily say the Christian God, but it points to some sort of higher being, some sort of creator of everything. And if you follow, you know, logically, it points to the Christian God as the true God. But in order to not believe in God, in order to reject God, you have to suppress God. You have to put an end to that. So you have to reason in your mind, why is God not real? Why do I not believe in this? And, and uh, to reject God is to reject an enormous amount of evidence. It really comes down to a predisposition to not accept anything that you can't see in the physical world. And that's not examining the evidence wherever it leads. That's a presupposition that sort of takes out every explanation in that way. Uh, But you have to reject, I mean, you have to look at the world and say, this is all an accident, and this all happened by coincidence. And even more so, I mean, just life itself. I remember reading in the science books in high school about the idea of spontaneous generation. And this is the belief they had until the Middle Ages that uh, like life would come out from nothing, and I think they disproved it by uh, some scientist, I forget his name, a scientist did an experiment with uh, meat, and he left meat rotting out, and he thought that the idea was maggots came from rotting meat, like the meat generated the maggots. But then they discovered, oh, that doesn't happen. There's no such thing as life coming from non-life. Except if you reject God, you have to accept that life came from non-life at least once uh, to, to think... Somehow, all of this happened out of nowhere for no reason, that there was no life whatsoever, and then all of a sudden life, and now humanity, civilization. And they've done you know, calculated odds on this, and it's more likely that you throw a bunch of paint at the wall, and it ends up being the Mona Lisa, than that life would create, you know, be how it is now without a creator. And so you have to suppress that. You have to say, no, there's, there's not a God. There's evolution. There's spontaneous generation. There's things just appeared out of nowhere. And I speak from experience on this because I used to be an atheist till about three years ago. I rejected God. And that's the, the, mind, the process in my mind, maybe not everybody's, but mine and probably most people who reject God. It's, you have to convince yourself that there is no God. You have to look and see how people rationalize that. You know, how can we explain the world without a God? And that's suppressing the truth of God. And they uh, do that it's to suppress the truth and unrighteousness because people want to continue doing what they're doing. Uh, so it takes a lot of... What's the word? You have to reject an enormous amount of evidence to reject God. Uh, it's kind of like, now the Mona Lisa, I just mentioned the Mona Lisa, obviously the most famous painting that's ever been painted. And people have studied this painting throughout the centuries to the, to the smallest little detail. Like they studied the way that she has her arms folded and what that all means and the angle of her smile and all that and what's going on in the background behind her. And people have gone into huge amounts of research into freaking out this painting, the Mona Lisa. But if you really want to understand the Mona Lisa... You're going to have to also understand the painter, Leonardo da Vinci, and to know why did he make that? What was he trying to get across with that painting? And if you are looking at the world and reject God, it's like that. It's like looking at a painting and saying there was no painter. Um, It's trying to understand this world. And yeah, you can understand a lot by observation, by looking, by science. Um, but it's just like, you, just like how you can understand a lot about a painting, a lot about the Mona Lisa. But you can't understand everything until you know the Creator. Hey, or uh, Bob Ross. You know, we like Bob Ross with the big afro. And when, when you hear him talking about his paintings, we put in the happy little trees. I mean, when you first see his paintings, you're like, oh, these are nice nature paintings. I love Bob Ross paintings. But when you hear him explaining what he's doing, it's like, oh, I get it. I mean, that's, that's what he's into. I mean, it makes, it makes sense. You understand it better when you know the painter. You understand this world more 
when you know the Creator. And you can't look at the world and say, there's no Creator. Uh, so it says then, because of that, because God has revealed Himself, it says, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power in God, and so that they are without excuse. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to look to the Christian God as being God, although you should, that's the only logical argument, He's the only God that's any different. But you should come to the logical conclusion that there is a God, there is a creator of this world, and if you reject that, you don't have an excuse, it says. That God has revealed enough about Himself in our world, in His creation, that we should at least know there's a God. And that brings us down the path to what's God after that. So to completely reject God... Uh, it doesn't make sense. It also says uh, people reject God at first by suppressing the truth and then by not glorifying God as God. It says in verse 21, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. And because people see everything and yet they still reject God, they reject the Creator, and then they don't glorify God. They're not thankful. You can't be truly thankful for the earth if you don't, if you're not thankful for the Creator. There's a whole bunch of people that, you know, kind of worship the earth, so to speak. And, uh, that's almost the, you know, the Mother Earth, the Goddess. But you can't say, uh, that I, you know, I appreciate the earth without appreciating the Creator. And that's not glorifying God as God, not being thankful, becoming futile in the thoughts and the foolish hearts were darkened. Again, this was me before I knew Jesus up until a few years ago. Uh, and this is everybody before they know Jesus. It takes a mindset that rejects God. You have to suppress that truth. And sometimes people argue, well, you know, they'll say, can't God give us better evidence, more direct evidence? I want God to talk to me. I want Him to show me a sign. I want a miracle. You know, I want to see God. The, the world that we already see is not enough for a lot of people. But it's not really about that. Because remember, Jesus is God. He came to the earth. He did miracles in front of people. He healed people. He rose from the dead. And not all that many people believed in that. People rejected that. They suppressed that. They came up with other explanations for it. So I don't think, if that's your mindset, that I need more evidence from God, I don't think really that's going to make a difference. And, it can if God, you know, puts that in your heart. But just like when Jesus was on the earth, that wasn't enough for most people. Most people rejected him then. Most people reject him today. Uh, so, are you rejecting God? You know, that's the question right there. What truths about God are you suppressing? You know, what are are you saying? Are you putting an end to that? Hey, uh, what faith does it take not to believe in God? I mean, there's a good question for. Non-believers, because me, before I was a Christian, I would think, no, I don't put faith in anything. I only believe in the facts. But no, it takes a lot of faith to believe this all came from nothing. It's all an accident. And so there's a lot of faith in unbelief, too. And there's common ground when you're talking to people about faith. I mean, hey, everyone has faith. Um, so what faith does it take not to believe in God to suppress that? Um, yeah, so that's the first point, that... People reject God. Secondly, it says that we worship other gods. After we reject the true God, the Christian God, we worship other gods. In verses 22 through 25, it says this, Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So after rejecting God, then what we do is create another God to take His place. And so it's really not rejecting Him, it's exchanging God for something else. Um, and this is idolatry. And the definition of idolatry is right here in verse 25. Exchange the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Uh, and this I mean, really speaks out to me when I remember before I was a Christian, this verse that says, professing to be wise, they became fools. And that was my sort of stance on this. And I talk a lot about myself today because this 
like perfectly describes me uh, before I was a Christian, even today in a lot of ways. Um, but professing to be wise, they became fools. And I would have this position in my mind like, now I'm too smart to believe in God. I mean, there's no evidence for that. And that's a crutch for people who need that. But I don't need it. And I would sound like, think I'm so smart, but really I'm being a fool by rejecting all of the evidence that he's presented to us. Um, and then what happens is, well, if you reject God or exchange God for something else, a lot of times it's people say, well, no, I don't think God is like that. He's like this. God wouldn't, you know, God wouldn't send people to hell. He's a loving God. And that's creating a false God, a God that fits to your standards so that really he's worthy, you know, that you make him worthy of your worship instead of him already being. So there's a lot of different ways people exchange the truth about God. But it's not really a full rejection. Even if you say, I don't believe in any of that kind of stuff, um, then what are you exchanging that for? Because everybody worships something. That's the whole idea behind idolatry. And we think today, because we don't you know, worship golden cows and stuff in our culture, that there's no idolatry. But that's the thing we don't see a lot of times. And this is something, you know, God opened my eyes to this when, when uh, he saved me. But everyone worships something or someone. And this is another way God has revealed himself. By his, you know, creation, by everybody was designed to worship. And they're designed to worship the true God, the Christian God. But when you reject him and you exchange him for something else, everybody worships something. So it's not the question of, uh, do you worship? It's who do you worship? What do you worship? And today, in our society, we're essentially a pagan culture, like ancient Greece or ancient Rome, uh, where everyone has their own god, and uh, there's many different gods, and we pick, oh, this is what I want to worship. We just don't call it that. Uh, we, we don't say we worship Venus, the goddess Venus. We say we have a sex addiction. It's the same thing. Hey, we don't say we're worshiping the god Bacchus, we call it alcoholism. It's the same thing. It's giving yourself to whatever that represents. In ancient Greece and Rome, they personified it as an actual God. It's the same thing. It's idolatry. It's what's underneath all the social issues, all the cultural issues. Something about idolatry. It's putting your life to something or someone besides God, besides Jesus. Uh, and that's a idol. Uh, now, everyone has his or her own God. Everyone worships that God if it's not the God of the Bible. And here's a way you can tell who it is, what offends you. Hey, who, what do you get offended about when people talk about? Hey, that might reveal what's your idol. Uh, because we don't like it when people say negative things about our God. Our God should only be praised. When people say things that get you mad about something, that might reveal an idol. Um, also, we get offended when people speak evil of that God, and we sacrifice to please that God. We talked about this before, talked about idolatry in First John. But, you know, all these false gods require a sacrifice, and we have to give something to them to please them. Um, you know, a common God is money. That's a common idol. And you get offended if people say, you know, money can be an idol. You need to give your money. You need to be free with your money. If that offends you, money might be your idol. Um, if you're sacrificing your family, your health, to gain money, you know, money might be an idol. They all work like that. And again, we, just, we, we call it something different, but it's the same idolatry as it's always been. Um, so why do people turn to idols rather than to God? Why do people worship the creature rather than the creator? It doesn't make sense to worship the created thing. It makes sense to worship the creator of those things. Um, Really, it comes down to reducing the demand of a guilty conscience. And this, a lot of times we don't think of it this way. I think uh, I was looking at the CSN, stalking the CSN Facebook page, and someone put in, put in a post about, uh, like they were really offended at an ant- on to every man an answer because, I, I forgot the exact thing, but they said, what one of the pastors said on to every man an answer was that people don't turn to God because they want to continue sinning. And that person was just so mad about that. I would never write in, but that made me really mad. Now, you don't know everybody. You don't know, what it, you know what's everyone's underlying thing about it. Yeah, we don't know everybody. 
oh, this was me. And it's, again, we could say we need more evidence. We could say we need a sign. We could say we need this. But even if those things happen, most of the time that doesn't do anything. And what it comes down to is what Jesus says. Those who walk in darkness do not want to walk in the light, lest their deeds should be exposed. The reason why people don't turn to the true God is to do that, you have to admit you're a sinner, that you're utterly, completely depraved. You have no basis standing before that God, nothing to speak of. And you have to say, I'm going to repent of that and stop and turn from it. People don't like that. People don't want to walk into the light because when you hide in the dark, people can't see who you are. Your deeds are hidden. And so Jesus says, that's why people stay in the darkness. So the light doesn't expose them. And that's becoming a Christian exposes that. It says, hey, you know what? The, the big lie in our culture, I'm a good person. No, you're not. You're, you're not a good person. We're, we're going to see in these next few verses, I mean, we're not good people. Not to the core. Um, I mean, we do good things, but we're not good people. And we, we reject God so that we can continue to sin. And then we worship other things so that we can justify doing it. To reduce the demand of a guilty conscience. And then you worship whatever is going to allow you to continue the lifestyle you want to live. And that's rejection of God. That's exchanging God for a different God, a false God, an idol. Again, it's everyone worships something. Now what do you worship? The consequence is in verse 24. It says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. And we'll talk more about this in a minute. But pay attention that God gave them up. And that's important. And also, before we move on here, remember, uh, even as Christians, we have idols. We have things that, that we can put above God sometimes in our life. And it's, you've got to figure those out. You've got to expose those. Walk into the light. And it has to be Jesus at the top of your life and as the foundation of your life. I love that picture, that he's the foundation of your life and he's the, the top of your life, pr- prominent, preeminent. Um, and whatever threatens to take that position... That's your idol. And everyone has something different, and then idols cause us to sin. So it's all tracing those different things. So we have, first, people rejecting God. Secondly, they exchange God and worship created things rather than the Creator Himself. And now, here's the tragedy. Thirdly, after we reject God and do all that, then God rejects people. Um, that's what it means when it says he, he gives them over. It says that three times. And so after we go through that, God rejects us. And uh, three times it says God gave them up. In verse 24, it says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Uh, it says in verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. Verse 28, uh, God gave them over to a debased mind. Hey, and that's, that's pretty heavy. Hey, God is not giving up on you. He's giving you over to those things that you wanted to do. Um, now, this is an act of love. You know, God is love. And this is God giving people what they want. And I think, uh, I mean, we do this as people sometimes too. Hey, before Jesus saved me and my wife Adrian about three years ago, we were uh, about to divorce. We were. Like right there, Adrian had said she wanted a divorce. I didn't. Uh, you know, both of us had our issues. And when she told me that, I argued with her. I said, no, no, you know, this, is, this isn't right. Uh, that's a dumb thing to say. You know, arguing with her. And when you argue with someone, it gives them, they want to argue back. And so, you know, after the next day, after, you know, going through that night, you know, whatever, probably went on for hours and hours and hours, and she left to work, and so I, I went on the internet, you know, oh, my wife wants to leave me, what should I do? And the recommendation was, don't argue. Don't uh, put up a fight. And I mean, not, not to sit back and, and, you know, just accept it, but to, to not argue, to, to give her over to that, so to speak. Because at that point, that's probably the only thing that's going to save your marriage, is hopefully that person, you know, continues along where they're going and sees the error and then turns from it. Uh, and to, to argue with someone isn't always going to change their mind. And it's, it's the same kind of idea here. I mean, after people have rejected God, after they've created their own God to worship, 
Sometimes what, what God does is the only thing that's going to cause someone to actually turn to Him is give them over to those things. Yeah, to see how terrible things can really get and to, to stop fighting it and uh, to give them up to the vile passions. I mean, it's, a, it's an act of love, but it, you know, it's very heavy. Uh, it says, uh, what, is, you know, what is God giving people over to because people want? And there's a lot of things. At first it says, in verses uh, 26 and 27, God has given people over to, to their sexual perversions. It says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And so it says that God has given people over to that, to, to homosexuality, as an example of uh, like a complete inversion of the natural order of things. Just like we said before, instead of people worshiping the Creator, they worship created things. And homosexuality is another inversion of that. Instead of you know, sex being as God intended between a man and a wife, married, uh, it's God has given people over to those uh, alternate lifestyles. And this is a very hot-button topic in our, in our culture today. I think one of the top reasons why people have a problem with Christianity is because of things like this. And they'll, they'll say, uh, you know, Christianity is intolerant. And that's one of the big complaints, that it's intolerant of people and living in different ways. And the you know, first problem with that is uh, you can't, I mean, on the other side, if you're tolerant, you can't only tolerate one side. So to say Christians aren't tolerant, well, that's not very tolerant either. Maybe because tolerance is accepting both sides and living with it. And so, I mean, there, I think really, though, both sides of this issue, this culture issue, have really dropped the ball. And as Christians, I mean, this is, again, this is a big thing that people uh, complain about Christianity and look at Christians and say, no, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to worship their God because that's how they are. So, yes, homosexuality is, is a sin. So this may be a little... Little off topic, but I think you know it's such a big thing in our culture. We can't just move past it and say you know it's not there or whatever. Um, the Bible clearly teaches that all sex outside of heterosexual marriage is sinful, uh, and that includes homosexuality. That includes fornication. You know, having sex with someone before you're married. And that includes adultery. Having sex with someone who's not your spouse. Anything outside of you know, heterosexual marriage is sinful according to the Bible. And not just in Leviticus. And that's the thing. When I was in college, I, I d argued that in a debate class or a speech class that you can't justify homosexuality as a sin from the Bible because if you say that, then you, have to, you can't wear clothes with two different fabrics and all this stuff. It doesn't just say in Leviticus. It's in the New Testament too. So this is a clear teaching of the Bible. It, but it's one sin out of many sexual sins. And I think it's hypocritical to only protest that, to only, to only say, no, this is you know, the unpardonable sin, so to speak. What does a lot more damage to Christian families than homosexual marriage is pornography. For one thing, there's a, a study just came out that showed about, where is it? about half of self-proclaimed born-again Christians look at porn at least once a month. About a third of self-proclaimed born-again Christians have committed adultery on their spouse. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, oh, we got, you know, give a free pass to homosexuality. And I'm saying that that's, there's bigger issues affecting Christians than to go and protest this or that. And I mean, I think if you're protesting that, you have to be saying, why don't you close down the porno stores? I mean, this is just my perspective. But can you be a Christian and have committed adultery? Yes, if you've repented. Can you be a Christian and be a homosexual? Yes, if you're not practicing it. Okay, the Bible says that uh, you can't... Uh, what does it say? It's in First John. We just did it a couple months ago. That you can't walk in the darkness and say you live in the light. So, I mean, if that's a propensity or a sin or a struggle of people, and that doesn't preclude anybody from being a Christian, it's repenting and uh, not practicing those things. Okay, so... 
we shouldn't just look at this and say it's just homosexuality. It's all sexual perversions that God has given people over to. Um, it says he's also given people over to a debased mind. Um, it says in verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. So again, this is God giving people over and saying, Okay, we'll let this run its course. See how it goes. And it's a debased mind. It's to do these things, you know, this huge list of different sins. I mean, we all do it. We've all done it. We all try to justify ourselves doing these things. Um, but to fully like commit yourself to that lifestyle takes a debased mind. I mean, God, that's God's passive wrath. He's giving people over to that. Let them see the consequences of that. And so in the original context of this, Paul is, when he's saying they... He's talking about Gentiles, okay, non-Jewish people, and we're Gentiles. So I think, you know, let's make it real. Let's, instead of saying they, let's say you. Okay, let's, uh, starting in, well, verse 28, And even as you did not like to retain God in your knowledge, God gave you over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, like we just talked about, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. You are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. What he means by that is we come up with new ways to sin. We're not satisfied with the old ways of sinning. We come up with new things to do. Um, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, we can't tell these things apart, Untrust, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Hey, that's, that's us. And that's, that paints a really, uh, just a depraved picture of how much we need a Savior. How can we think we can stand before a perfect God and say, hey, here's my resume. You know, I might have done a couple good things too, but this is, we've all, I've, yeah, I've done everything in that list. And so have probably you. And so has probably everybody. We've, except Jesus, uh, we've, all, we've done all these things and we have no right to say, to stand before God and say we can be justified by works. And God calls our works outside of Jesus uh, filthy rags and dung, it translates as sometimes. That's not pleasing to God because this is who we are. This is who we are to the core. And this is why people don't like Christianity. It's offensive. Because we're not good people. We're not, you know, yeah, I do a couple bad things, but mostly I'm a good person. Christianity says this is who you are. And this is why you need a Savior. If you don't understand that, then you're going to reject God because you think you can save yourself. Uh, you're going to create a different God who's going to let you continue doing these things. And not that you stop doing these when you become a Christian, but you repent from it. it, it you have a bigger awareness of it. You want to turn from it. Um, now the key though here is verse 32. And it says, Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And this points the finger at all of us as being hypocrites. Because we look at that list of sins and we think of people who are like that, and we say, man, that's, those people are terrible. They, don't, they deserve to go to hell, really. You know, they don't deserve God's mercy. But it says, um, those, uh, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. And so the problem isn't, hey, if, you know, if this person will get his act together, then I'd be okay. The problem is we're all like this. And we can't just point to people and say, you know, they're the problem with the world. We are all the problem with the world. And yeah, you know, maybe some people have done more evil things than you've done, for sure. But God doesn't grade on a curve like that. Um, he doesn't say, well, you're better than a lot of those people. So, so you know, welcome to the kingdom. It, it's, it's not like that. Hey, we say people who are like this deserve death. They deserve this. They deserve whatever's coming to them. But we do the same things. But we also approve of those who practice them. A lot of times this gets people rec recognition to you know, behave like this, to follow that lifestyle. Um, now, let me give you a spoiler alert to next week. In case uh, 
I mean, Paul maybe is thinking, you know, as he's writing this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, hey, what if you read that list of sins, and you're like, oh yeah, stick it to those sinners. Man, they're terrible. Look at all that. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. And for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. See, everybody's guilty. And no one is getting off. No one can be justified by works. We can say, yeah, these sinners do this. These people act this way. It says right here, we do the exact same things, just different manifestations. We'll look at this more next week as we get into chapter 2. Um, but again, it's not. The problem isn't out there with the world. The problem is also in here. Uh, and it takes Jesus to change any of that, because this is who we are. And I like how C.S. Lewis says it. Uh, he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. If you're not going to say to God, your will be done, he's going to say to you, fine, your will be done. Hey, live like this. Be eternally separated in eternal conscious torment in hell. And that's what hell is, separation from God, eternally. Um, it's a choice to go there. And we have all this evidence. We have creation. And we have. I mean, there's so much proof of the Christian God, Jesus, and that his... You know, resurrection is a real historical fact and that he's provided forgiveness of all of our sins. And again, it takes a suppression of that truth you know, to, to turn yourselves completely over to that. And God will let you. If you're going to suppress him, if you're going to come up with other gods, maybe that's what it's going to take. That's what needed to happen to me and my wife, Adrian, when we became Christians a few years ago. I mean, like I said, this whole section, this is me, especially before I was a Christian and still, you know, struggle with, with a lot of these things. It, because when you see you know, how far it goes, I think, well, for, for me, one of the, the deciding things, like, okay, I'm going to be a Christian, or I'm going to you know, try it out, and I don't think anyone decides I'm going to be a Christian. You know, the Holy Spirit does that. But one of, one of the things for me was, you know, I'd been living, and I'd been doing things my way, and what was the fruit? And what had come out of my life by doing things the way I wanted to do it? And there wasn't a lot there. You know, my marriage was falling apart. Uh, and I, you know, I just didn't do anything. I mean, I don't have like a testimony that, oh, I was, you know, addicted to crack and uh, not, not anything like that. I was lazy and loser. I didn't do anything. Uh, and th- I realized there's nothing there. I wasn't myself. This was my plan for my life and I wasn't doing anything with it. And that was one of the things that helped me see, well, you know, yeah, let's, let's try church. Let's see what that's like. Because I had given up. God had given me over to that. And then, then I realized, yeah, okay. Um, and the Holy Spirit worked in me. And you know, saved, Jesus saved me, forgave me of my sins. Uh, but it, I mean, it took that for me and probably a lot of you. You had to go down that path and see how terrible things were going on your own. Now, we've seen you know, people reject God. They create new gods to worship instead. Then God turns people over to do the things they wanted to do in the beginning. And so how should God respond to all of this? Hey, you know, again, we reject Him, worship other gods, turned over to do the, all those disgusting, depraved things. Hey, you know, maybe we should all be sent to hell. That's the, you know, the uh, payment for what we've done. That's where we deserve to go on our works, is to go to hell. And maybe God should just abandon us and say, no, nah, those guys, I'm done with them. I, I give up. You know, maybe he should make us pay it off. You know, you, if you pay enough penance, you live long enough in purgatory, you do these things, then maybe you can earn it. You know, um, these would probably be the things I'd do if I was God, but you know, I'd be a terrible God. You'd be terrible gods. I think we, we put and say, you know, hell's not fair. It's not fair that, that God would send people there. Hey, but what, what are the alternatives? Hey, and what should God's response be to this? You know, he's so much better than we are. He's perfect and just and loving. And here's God's response to all this, to all that list of things at the end of chapter 1. God's response is Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ has died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were 
this list of sins, while we were actively living that lifestyle, while we were rejecting God, when we were worshiping other things instead of the God who's worthy of all praise, Christ died for us. God the Father sent His Son into human history to pay for our sins because this is who we are. Because we are depraved and disgusting and sinful and we have no chance on our own. And so out of His love, He sent His Son. And it's not because we are pretty good people. It's because we were like this. We had no, no chance. And that's God's love for us. He sent His Son. I mean, we wouldn't probably sacrifice our kids to, to die for even a good person. And this is, this is us. And His Son willingly came into human history, God the Son, to live as a perfect human, to never do any of the things on this list, to perfectly embrace His Father, God the Father, not reject Him, to always worship His Father, and not to come up with other gods, and to never do these things, to live perfectly under the law, so He could be a perfect sacrifice. Because if this is us, and our sacrifice is that, that doesn't mean a lot. I mean, that's, that's not a very good sacrifice to pay for your sins, is to offer something like, like we read right here. It takes a perfect sacrifice to pay for that. It takes God to pay for that. And that's what Jesus did when He came uh, to this earth. He, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's, that's huge to me. He, he didn't make, he tell us, you know, we need to do this to please Him first. While we were still sinners, while we were like this. And, uh, you know, just to close, look, I want to look at a couple things that shows God's heart. For, for us, how much He loves us, even though this is who we are. One of my favorite things is uh, in Luke chapter 7, I'll just paraphrase it rather than reading it, but it's, it's the account where Jesus is eating dinner with a Pharisee, you know, the most religious person, the guy who would claim, I'm not like any of these sins on this list. I don't do those because, you know, I'm pretty holy, I'm pretty religious. That's the Pharisees. And Jesus goes to eat at His house and as he's eating, a woman comes in who the Pharisees say, she's a sinner. And she doesn't deserve to come in here with us, us holy people, us sinless people. And that woman uh, kneels down at Jesus' feet, cries, uh, anoints him with perfume. And the Pharisees say, what are you doing letting that sinner touch you? Don't you know who she is? And Jesus gives a parable. He says, uh, you know, again, paraphrasing, if you have a debt of, let's just say, a million dollars, and someone forgives it, versus you have a debt of a thousand dollars and someone forgives it, who's going to be uh, more thankful? Well, the one who's been forgiven the million dollars. And Jesus says, that's this woman. You don't think you need my forgiveness. This woman knows who she is, and she's been here kneeling at my feet. She's been crying about her sins. And she's the one who's forgiven. And she's the one who's thankful. I mean, it's not these holy, self-righteous people who think they aren't like this. And he says, those who are uh, forgiven little, love little, and your faith has made you well, go in peace. And that's, again, that's Jesus' heart towards us as sinners. He doesn't commend the Pharisee for thinking he doesn't break these rules. He commends the woman for knowing who she is and weeping about it and bowing down to Jesus. It says in Ezekiel 33.11, again, this is God's heart. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die? God doesn't want anybody to be separated from him. That's why he sent his son, so that we wouldn't have to be anymore. So we could accept that and be connected with it. God's will is not that anyone would perish eternally. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die? So if you don't know Jesus... When you hear things like this, it's, gonna, it's either going to harden your heart or soften your heart. You know, that's always what happens when anyone tells you about Jesus. Harden your heart to Him or soften your heart. The Puritans would say, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And you're either going to say, oh, this guy's a moron, which, you know, he is. Or you're going to say, uh, you know, that book is made up. Jesus is a myth. That's hardening your heart. You're going to say something like that to try to, you know, poo-poo it to the side and uh, continue on whatever you're doing. Or maybe it's going to soften your heart. And maybe you're going to say, you know, I am like that. That is me. And what hope do I have? And you might not be all the way there yet, but you should be softening your heart. You're either going to soften it or harden it. And you pray that you'd soften your heart to this when you hear about who you are and how much you need a Savior. And don't harden it and say, no, I don't need that. I can do it on my own. Hey, but if you do know Jesus already, I mean, don't you just... You, 
you got to love Jesus so much. I mean, it's, it, it, this is who we are. Again, I mean, I, just, I can't get over it. This is who we are. He died for us. He didn't have to do any of that. None of us have to go to heaven. And people ask, you know, why do people have to go to hell? Well, why can anybody go to heaven, really? And it's because of Jesus, because He loves us, and we should love Him in return. And you were like this, but for the grace of God. So we should be able to I mean, worship Him freely like that woman is kneeling at His feet and crying, but also rejoicing in forgiveness and also in service to Him. She anointed Him with oil. We should just be so thankful to Jesus that we want to serve Him, worship Him, and glorify in this that we're not seen as sinners, we're seen as saints. That's what the Bible says. God doesn't see us like this anymore because Jesus' blood has paid for it. And though our robes are scarlet, now they're white as snow. And it's, we're not tricking God, but that's how the cross works. Yeah, Jesus took our sins upon Him as a sacrifice, and He puts His righteousness onto us. So God doesn't see us as this list. He sees us as saints, He says, as forgiven, as clean, as pure, white as snow. And so we need to remember, you know, Jesus didn't die for us because we're mostly good people. And He didn't die for us because we earned it. He didn't die for us because we deserve it. He died for us because we're totally, utterly depraved and disgusting, but He loves us anyway. So praise God. And let's pray. Uh, God, first, I confess, I'm a sinner. I am everything that we read tonight. I've been that way. I am that way. And I thank you, God, for, for your mercy, for, for your grace, that you would send your Son while we were still your enemy to die for us as God. And it, it, it doesn't even make sense. And th- that's how I know that you're real, God. Because you love us enough to do that. You, you care about us and you're worthy of all worship. So God, I, I pray you would work in our hearts tonight repentance um, to turn from those things if we're pursuing them. To, to live more uh, obedient to you, Lord Jesus, because, because of how much you love us and how grateful we are in return. And I pray for these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or give us a call at 800-357-4226. There's also a video of today's teaching available on our website, theriverchristianfellowship.com, and then click the media button. Don't forget to catch the evening service at 7 p.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship live on CSN.